0: people ask me this all the time they're like can you teach creativity to people i love
1: that question
0: yeah and my personal view is that you can but you're not teaching them how to be creative you're reminding them how to be creative because they were born with it they've just forgotten
1: I'm David Kepron, and this is Next Level Experience Design. Back in the early 2000s, the International Retail Design Conference came into being. The event was sponsored by VMSD Magazine and ST Media Group, now owned by SmartWork Media, but it wasn't your typical trade show. They tried booths and vendors early on, and then they abandoned all of that for a fully educational event. Retail industry leaders and some of the best retailers and visual merchandisers have since gathered every single year, but for 2020, due to COVID and the pandemic, to talk about all things retail. There were always great presentations about projects that pushed the boundaries of retail design, there were award galas, and of course, the requisite cocktails and spontaneous conversation in the hallways where ideas flowed naturally. As a member of the VMSD editorial advisory boards, I have attended all but two of those. And over the past 20 years, I recall a few speakers that simply captivated the audience. Christian Davies was a standing-room-only presenter that drew crowds to hear insightful, thought-provoking, and slightly cheeky commentary that he seemed to be able to get away with because, well, maybe he had that great English accent, and that gave him some slack. But mostly because he was on target always, and freakishly smart. Christian didn't hold back. He went to the heart of the matter on everything he talked about sometimes critical, sometimes satirical, and often emotional. To this day, frequent attendees will recall a session he presented on compassionate capitalism, where he and the audience shared tears over the profoundly moving actions of some global retailers who stepped out beyond the bottom line and reached out in support of people in need. I was always one of the standers, not because I needed an easy way out of the presentation if it wasn't going to meet my needs, but because people had rushed to the room to be creatively inspired and challenged in their thinking. I have worked with and competed against Christian for design gigs with national and international retailers, but I've mostly studied him as a retail design brand experience placemaking leader who has had a career working on both sides of the line, as a design consultant and as someone who's also worked for big brand retailers. Christian is a visionary leader with over 30 years working in the retail and experiential industry across the globe. He's skilled in strategy and innovation, design, and implementation. He can get stuff done. He's amassed over 100 international awards working for everything from disruptive startups to the very top of the Fortune 500. And he continues to be a keynote and session speaker at every major retail conference in the U.S., Christian is now the design practice leader for Bergmeier, a Boston based design firm. And a recent favorite topic for his speaking sessions these days navigating the future in this time of seismic change. Love it. Right up my alley. And with that, I welcome Christian Davies to the Next Level Experience Design podcast. Hello, sir. Hello. This has been um, a delight and something that for, I'm going to literally say years, I, you know, I don't often gush over, you know, my own colleagues or contemporaries in the retail and, and experience design <laughs> space, but, but, you know, I have, uh, I have loved listening to uh, you at multiple retail design conferences over the years. We have both competed on projects and I, I've worked for you even um, as a consultant uh, and shared time um in lots of discussions. So I am finally delighted to get you here in your new role at Bergmeier, which I think is interesting, and we can talk about that in a moment. But I would like to lead with this. And that is, I recently, as in yesterday, read an article that you wrote, and you start off by this really interesting quote: Some people don't like change. Turns out change doesn't much care. You want you would you care to expand on that a little bit because i i find it both fascinating and extremely timely and we'll dig into the whole idea of change
0: yes it's not my quote i wish i could lay claim to it it's from a it's from a magazine article i read oh years ago vanity fair and um they started the article with this and i was just fascinated by it because it talks to me to that kind of um Sort of king canoe idea, you know, you can stand in front of the ocean and try and stop it, but you cannot. And it's very similar with change; it it is just going to roll over you, whatever happens. And I have a lot of people in my life, both professional and personal, who have a very, very hard time with change. And I, and I, at times in my life, have had a hard time with change. But but it is inevitable. You know, the only thing we can guarantee, uh, as certain, is uncertainty. You know, oh, right, right. And, and so that that concept I sort of fixated on. So I would always I would always start my speeches with those two lines. And, you know, if you thought that was, you know, apropos of where we were in 2015, look at where we are now, you know, right. and I I've been, you know, fixating quite a lot in, in the last few months on that period leading into 2020. You know, that where we just had no idea what mm. was right around the corner. And um, it's very funny. We just, I just saw yesterday a photograph of my daughter's um, birthday party two years ago. And I think I remember at that birthday party was the first time that I actually said, Have you heard about this virus? You know, and it just was one of those things that we just had no idea. And I think the terrifying part of it, the initial part of it, that was just horrific and awful. But I don't think any of us had any real understanding of how deep those tentacles were gonna go into every aspect of our lives. Yeah. So when I was writing this article about, about change and about trying to imagine how, you, how human beings react to that visceral of a shock, like just as, as biological entities, what happens, and I know your wife studies a lot of this, what happens to your body and your brain when you go through that big of a pivot. Yeah. Um, the article was was sort of talking a little bit about just something I've been kind of casually observing, which is this sense of returning to some degree to comfort things. Mm-hmm. Things that make us centered and make us mm-hmm. more comfortable. In just in the face of this avalanche of new circumstances and, yeah. and new things going on. So so it, it wasn't really a a commentary on whether that is 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 right or wrong or good or bad it's just something i've been seeing you know i I've, i went i went away um sort of on a retreat kind of vacation this summer real kind of get away from it all kind of thing like no cell phones like nothing oh great and um i just remember when i was there sort of really looking around and reflecting on all of these people that were there with the sort of same desire to say you know i don't want to read about politics right now because that right. doesn't seem very important anymore and right, right. um i want to eat some really good food and i want to eat it outside and i want to eat it surrounded by people and and sort of going back to some of those i guess kind of primal things and then asking ourselves as designers you know you have a story fantastic career in both retail and hospitality i'm very fascinated by hospitality mm. and how it starts to you know, come back from this. Uh, what's its right. response? What's its next move?
1: Uh, yeah, I think hospitality will be slower to respond than the retail world is. Just, I think because by nature, retail has always been geared towards multiple cycles, you know, within the years and would create would create holidays where there really, you know, justifiably should be none, simply to get more change and more product as more assortment in front of customers. Uh, but I want to uh, try to address this idea that you you actually did talk about, or that came became obvious for me is that it seems to me that there are these very strong dichotomies in where we live now. I don't have any doubt that, because I think I felt the same thing over this past year about change being inevitable. Transformation, however, is not. Mm-hmm. And I think, um, and I, I don't know to whom I can attribute this quote either, but this there is this quote that uh, change is inevitable, transformation is not. Transformation cannot be done as an act of will. It can only be done as an act of love. And I cool I asking. like... I like that one because I think certainly I have had to force myself to redefine, to re, uh, a line around a different set of criteria that was about transformation for me and, and really questioning a lot this past year, you know, about yeah. what I was chasing, how I was chasing it, what the next big job should be, what the title should be, all these things. And and it was like, hit the pause button. And by the grace of a pandemic, you know, not only are the canals clear in Venice and the ozone layer being slightly, you know, replenished, but we have this opportunity to reevaluate, yeah. you know, and that, and I think you, you did said, listen, there are not many of these forks in the road that we come yeah. to. Um, And this is a big one. It seems to me that as we go racing towards this idea of an uncertain future, that the past becomes more distant exponentially. And it seems that, you know, we often are like trying to hold on to vapor trails, you know, this idea that there's this thing that we think we can go back to because it gives us, like you said, that sense of comfort. But is is that a good strategy for navigating into this this next phase where we can all say, I don't know. I mean, I wish I could tell. I thought I could tell a year ago, but I don't know. Yeah, and I'd have to say I don't know either. I think it's a brilliant question.
0: You know, I've spent the last year removing toxic things Mm. in my life, and I made a list. I made a list of things. And there's obvious ones in there like, you know, and smoking cigars so much and all that stuff and getting out on the bike more yeah i get it that's all good but i gave up social media completely wow and um and what a freeing moment that was um shockingly so i got nice. a new phone <laughs> uh and i just didn't upload the apps so that's um, amazing. yeah so that that became like a cleansing in a very very powerful way like i i literally stopped looking in places that i was looking before and those are places i wasn't looking in 10 years prior that's quite a recent thing but it's amazing when you turn that noise off how your day is different and then (laughs) there's probably going to be some laughs at this but i got into um the kinfolk guys quite a bit and the slow living thing Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And again it, it turned into this exercise to sort of look around my house. And I and also by the way I don't think I don't think there's almost anything that defines people more than their home. You know when you go into their home. And I mean that in a largely in a very positive way. You, yeah, you sure you really connect with people when you when you spend time in their spaces. So start looking around your house and you're like, what are the things here that give me joy and comfort? And what are the things here that irritate me? Mm-hmm. Terence Conrad had an amazing, amazing quote where he said, if you have a broken door handle, he said, every time you use that door handle, a small part of you dies, <laughs> which, is, which is a little extreme, but I know what he means. If there are sure. things about the environment that you're in that irritate you, they irritate you every day. And so this idea of going back to comfort was, I think, less about looking to the past and trying to find the past and more about zeroing in on what are those things that really bring you joy. And, you know, one of the things I got into, it sounds like I've been spending the whole pandemic at a retreat, but but um, one of the things I got into was, was Wabi Sabi. I read a, right. bunch of, wrote a bunch of stuff on that. And I've always been a designer and, you know, I think a lot of us are that really obsessed with perfection and really obsessed with things being just so. Mm-hmm. And Wabi Sabi's like, you've just got to get over that. And you've just got to realize that's not the natural way of the world. And that is us forcing ourselves onto. And so, you know, one of the things it was about was spending time outside uh, in your garden and you talked about transformation being an act of love you know being in your garden and recognizing that there are four seasons and those four seasons have a purpose and you might not like one of them but the garden has to do it it has to go through that it has to have fall or it has to have winter or it has to have spring or it has to have summer and so spending a year in the garden on the back of reading all of these tomes and and sort of understanding that you can't stop the tree dying for the winter. You can't. Mm. The leaves are falling off. It looks kind of gnarly. That's the way it's supposed to be. So, again, the sort of inevitability of change, but, but embracing that change and seeing it as a path towards comfort and just the natural order of things, I think is – it's been really transformational for me as a designer. I'm lucky in the last couple of projects that I've got to work on – Um. Which is very different than where i was say a year ago i'm now working with clients who sort of have the same perspective on things mm-hmm. and so we're able to create and build things together now that aren't going to look perfect by, by any way shape or form but they've got a sort of sense of honesty to them and 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 i think that's a nice spot to find yourself in as well
1: that's interesting the idea of uh of they're not going to look perfect because because my sense of it is, is that the more we live in this, uh, this perpetual <laughs> liminal space, I call it, you know, for the in-between these large potential, I, I usually refer to it in, in terms of technology changes, but um, that perfection is really a challenge. I think there's this whole sort of, um, this whole trend of cake making these days oh, which yeah. is the unfinished cake right and first of all yeah. they're beautiful right all the ingredients are there there's some icing. there's they're stacked and they're decorated and it's really interesting but but it seems to me that more and more things have to be less and less finished uh and, and i don't know how i don't even know whether this idea of finishing something and saying done stop full stop move on to the next thing makes any sense it certainly doesn't make sense like i always talk about my kids for whom there is this, this perpetual flow of stuff through their life that never seems to be finished. And it's okay. It's perfectly okay. It's hard to, it's hard to adapt to that, I think, for men of a certain age or women of a certain <laughs> age, um, where there was a beginning and a definite end to certain things. And, but it seems to be completely inconsistent with the kind of world we live in now.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's, there's lots of things I would say. Uh, there's a brilliant article. I could, first of all, I can't find this article because I've tried. Um, but there was a r- brilliant article that I read in either Esquire or GQ. Um, but it was called The 10 Decades of Man. Mm. And it was written, it, it's really an article about man's relationship with fashion and with brands because, because of the source material. But, but it's about the 10 ages of the 10 decades of being a man and, and talking about you and I. Uh, men of a certain age uh, they're talking about the the sort of liberation that you get when you get to your 50s mm. and you've sort of figured it out like you kind of know what you like and what you don't and you you have a reasonable reserve of cash to get to the things that you like and what you don't and avoid the things that you don't and and that was kind of like a nice way i think of of sort of seeing the first 40 years is trying to figure out what the hell you want and then Correct. the 50s, said, you've got one decade to enjoy it. Because after that, it's all downhill, buddy. But, um, but I thought that, that idea of... The, the article is brilliant because it embraces every decade. And said every yeah. decade is fantastic for very different reasons. And so as you go into your 60s, it's different. Your 70s, your 80s, and even your 90s. And they have quotes and interviews with, with guys of those age groups talking mm-hmm. about, you know, the best thing about being 90. And you're like, you don't read that very often. So I kind of loved that. But also, I think this idea of not being finished, it's fascinating. You know, the last, I would say, uh, 10 years, I've had feet in two camps. So I've had feet in the building of things, the making of things. And those things, there is a finish line. And you, you reach that finish line and it's done. And the other foot has been sort of more in the kind of strategy and branding uh, world and you know i'm a passionate believer that brands are never finished you know that that project is not done we are done for right now but that brand is going to continue to evolve and change and so the fascinating thing that is going on right now to me i mean if in many ways i'm most encouraged and infused by things like restaurant brands because i think they have been thrown a shit show of circumstances and have reacted amazingly like across the board from fast food to absolute luxury restaurants have they've pulled their socks up they've gotten to it they've figured out a way to survive and i've been you know almost most disappointed by the big brands who i think Mm -hmm. are looking far more kind of deer in the headlights than than these poor little restaurant guys who are figuring out a way i mean the fact that Noma was able to win best restaurant in the world for the second time this year, you know, is, is like, my God, you know, what are they doing over there? They're doing some good stuff is what they're doing. And I, I just look at some of the bigger, you know, the bigger sort of more corporate entities and go, you know, d- do you have that degree of responsiveness? Are you being mm. aggressive about this? Because, but yeah, I think this conversation around unfinished and, 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 um, and just what, again, just what a pivot. You know that human beings are not really biologically designed to deal with the last, well, let's call it thirty years. I mean, right. No, I think right. Toffler's uh, Future Shock, I think, was written in like seventy, early seventies, mm-hmm. and this mm-hmm. is a book where he writes about the dangers of too much information in too short of a period of time. You yeah. know th- how what that yeah. does to the human brain. Well, he wrote that book twenty years before the internet. Yeah. So you, you, you go, he, he saw it in the early seventies and then it just exploded. So the ability of the human brain to process what's going on right now and, and to react and to deal with it and to come out of it with intentionality is 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 remarkable to me that we're that we're surviving and you know you and i are both parents have uh, almost almost grown up kind of grown up sort of sort of kind of grown up here. young
1: in my case young gentleman in your case young gentleman, <laughs> yes
0: uh, and i have a young daughter a young a young lady uh, and a young gentleman watching those guys get their arms around this and um, mm-hmm. and and you know very fascinating to me i know generational marketing is dead and people don't believe in it anymore and this, People say generate Gen Z and all that kind of is too fragmented and you can't maybe so. But I but I will say there are patterns and behaviors that I see when I talk to young people that lead me to believe we are dealing with a totally different consumer with a totally different mindset into totally different things than the previous one. So that'll be that'll be fascinating.
1: So this is all fits into this idea of change uh, for me it it turns out as i see it that the dichotomy is particularly pronounced here, you know, that, and I love this idea that we're not built for this kind of change. And I think that is fundamentally true. You know, it took us four and a half billion years thereabouts to get here (laughs) um, from the creation of the earth or thereabouts, you know, I happen to be reading a lot of stuff now about the creation of the universe. I'm not sure why, but I find it fascinating. Because it's awesome. Yeah, yeah, I I still don't understand quantum theory, man. I think that just blows my mind every time. Makes my head hurt, yeah. (laughs) Sometimes I, I, I think I understand string theory, but not really uh but you know it's it's interesting we're we're geared and find comfort in the familiar which i think you you talk about in the article and and the way you describe that is not so much a nostalgiaism yeah. as it is a search for those things that are comforting and i i suppose what one should do is make a checklist of of what are the core components of that sense of comfort what are they you know and yeah. if we can do that then it doesn't matter what you're really what field of operations you're in uh, those core things you can design regardless of the vertical. It right? doesn't, doesn't yeah. so much matter, yeah. um, but we're equally driven by the thrill of discovery and novelty. And that's how we learn. And it seems to me that these two things live on this strange continuum between abject fear of, and and the necessity to have the sense of comfort, but on this other side, how quickly we get bored with the usual and the humdrum and the habituation to those things around us, right? I mean, it seems, it seems that these are these dichotomies that we live with, this uncertainty. And somewhere in between is where we are perpetually, right? What are your thoughts on that?
0: I think it's a really interesting, it's a very interesting observation, David. I think um, I hadn't framed it like that, but you're absolutely right. The, I mean, there is a part of me, like I said earlier on, where I don't know if this return to comfort is right or wrong. I think, in many ways, it's just a it's it's a reflection of a reaction to what is going
1: uh, on. I agree; reaction makes sense. Um, but
0: I I don't disagree with you one hundred percent that we are interested in the new, we are interested in the what's next. What I'm seeing is actually less and less of that. Like mm. I'm seeing. Um, more things being sort of repackaging and reshaping. And and again, it's like, what do you get? I mean, partly I think it is, it's just a reflection of where you and I are both on our sort of arc as designers. You know, we've been fortunate enough in our careers to travel, to see a lot of different cultures and a lot of different, expressions of design and a lot of different ways that it plays itself out around the world the thing that really excites me today is innovation around sustainability Mm -hmm. uh, and particularly at scale Mm -hmm. and the ability to um to make a move that will make a meaningful difference literally makes the hairs on the back of my arm stand up and and i don't Oftentimes, really care what that end product looks like if it if it delivers on that promise. You know, um, one of our clients over at Bergmeyer is Everlane, and spending time learning about the things that they're doing in supply chain and and you know the the, the massive amount of electricity and power they save by simply air drying their jeans versus sticking them in a the dryer, and the numbers are, are shocking. And you sit there and you go, how 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 much effort does that take? Not very much, but what a difference on the back end. So those ideas, I think, are the ones that, you know, I've only got 15 more years doing this if I'm lucky, and I want to spend that 15 years trying to use this thing that we have been given as a gift, this thing of design, trying to use that to, for better and for good. And that doesn't just mean sustainability, but it has to be a component of that. But I think there are other things, and you and I have talked about this as friends for a while. You know, we we both have, um, we've both lived through aging aging parents. You know, Correct. and and that um, that is a is a side of of the world that I think design is going to need to play a part in improving, um, because we're all living longer, and if we live long enough, um, you know, there are going to be health issues waiting for us that we're going to need to solve for. And we have to do a better job of that than we're doing today. So you know, personally, as a designer, those, those are the things that are, are surprising me and exciting me. Now, if you were to talk to my daughter about the things that she's into, it's a, it's a, it's almost a completely different language yeah. that we're speaking. So, yeah. so I think that, that certainly adoption and excitement of technology and media I think is a is a component that is fascinating to me. It's just it's it's you know something that I think we we need to look to uh, look to the next generation of designers to help us realize that because that's the world that they're they're living in, which I'm also super excited about.
1: So there were three things in there that that I want to come back to: the sustainability issue, the real idea of. Culture shifts in this younger cohort of experienced seekers and what that means in this idea of your interest in aging, not just because we both are <laughs> and everyone does, but also because we do share that common history in our our families of origin, about um, parents who eventually passed away from yeah. a dementia and Alzheimer's. Park that just for a second. and I want to try to tie a bow around this idea of change just for a minute, and that'll help segue into, I think, the younger generation conversation, which is, in this article you wrote, you said, so what if you could get your arms around uncertainty and be okay with it? Mm -hmm. Right. That, that for me has been the largest. And I thought, yeah, that's been the largest challenge I've had this past year is, is not knowing and having to find a place that I could be at peace with that and not be totally riddled with anxiety or fear or the what ifs or what happens when, um, if you could do that, how does, how do you think, that changes your approach to design, to retailing, to experience making, to leadership, when you finally are able to come to grips with this idea that uh, uncertainty is just, ironically, it's always been, we just somehow have worked ourselves into this headspace that you could control destiny and actually you can't. And I think this past year has shown us that we can't. So how do you think that that it might change the approach if you could land in a place that you're okay with uncertainty being a constant?
0: Yeah, I think I think it, you know, certainly in terms of my work, if I look back at the projects that I've done, the ones that I talk about, there are there are plenty of projects that we've both done that are perfectly well executed. They're nice, they're great, they answer the brief, they do the job. Mm-hmm. They make client a lot of money. They look beautiful. They win awards, right? There's pl- there are plenty of those. I have a handful of projects where I was able to say to the client, we've really got to blow some shit up here. And and actually have people saying to me, get out. Like, you've got to be kidding. Like, do you have any idea how risky that idea is? What you're saying? Yeah, exactly. Are you, are you, like, are you literally having people saying to me, you're on drugs? You clearly have no idea. And we have these lengthy conversations, and I'm wrestling, while well, I'll say to them, you know, you You hire you know who I am you hired me based on what you know you know what I do, uh, and you've got to be comfortable being uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. You have to be okay, so I use this image of a of a sofa that that's made of like it looks like it's a cactus, and I'm like you've gotta sit on that so so some of them, them would just literally, literally lock the door and never let me back in. But there is a handful of these clients who, who we held hands and we walked into the sunrise together. Yeah. And those are the projects where I felt we moved the needle. I, I honestly only really think you get to that tantalizing thing we've been talking about for the last half an hour of, of, yeah. of the future and of what's next. You only get there by breaking some eggs and by taking some risks. And and you have to, and anybody who's not, anybody who's comfortable with taking risks, I would say is reckless. So you, you, you're not supposed to be comfortable. You're supposed to be extremely uncomfortable. We, mm. We're probably going to need to bring the lawyers in and have a chat with them before we do this. Otherwise, we're just reckless. We're just scatter shooting and doing crazy shit. That that, yeah. that, that I'm not advocating that in the slightest. But I'm saying that if you can get but, you know, I've always said great projects take three things. They take an incredible design team. They take an incredible client and they take a moment in time. And and, and I have tons of projects where I've got two of those, you know, um, but you don't get three very often. And that's when the lightning hits the bottle. That's yeah. when you you know the market's ready for it, the client's willing to do something risky, and you've got a design team that can actually pull that off. Because that's yeah. not easy. Yeah. I think that's when you get to this crazy stuff. So, so I've always actually, you know, again, I've been doing this for 30 years like you have. I can, I, can, I can remember every detail of those conversations. I can remember those meetings. I can remember the look on their face. I can remember me not sleeping the night before because thinking this idea is mental. It's crazy. This is like, but I can't not say it. And that also is going to be what we need right now to get us out of this mess. You know, I am a firm believer that retail has the potential to change the world.
1: Mm-hmm. It's
0: one of the biggest industries on the planet. It employs, sure. it employs more people than any other industry on the planet in, in mm-hmm. some shape or form. And so I believe that it has the opportunity, not just economically, but in terms of vastness of scale, it has the opportunity to turn the meter backwards to fix yeah. things. But only if you get some brands coming out of the woodwork saying, I'm going to put my head above the wall, and I'm going to be number yeah. one,
1: and I'm going to do it," Which requires a certain level of risk tolerance, a certain level of that thought, like, this is crazy, but it just might work. It, it requires that, and I love the Ray Bradbury quote, I've been using it frequently, that um, you know, sometimes when you're standing at the edge of uncertainty, this next big jump you're going to take is going to be one that you do and to use that Bradbury quote, you know, you you take the leap and you build your wings on the way down, you yeah. know, and you hope before you hit terminal velocity um, that your wings are built because that would be really good. But we don't we don't know. It brings me to now to this this group of uh, younger consumers. My sons have often said to me, you know, God, you guys have left this place in a bit of a mess for us to mop up. Um, and right. they, they have uh, a they're incredibly smart they're much more perceptive they're aware of the inauthenticity of either politics or brands you know pushing messages out those kinds of things what do you, what do you think it, it takes for brands in general to be able to connect to them when i think they begin to become increasingly disconnected from this idea that tradition matters
0: well david you you said it in that last description the word is awareness um, if I was to to have a single word that I would say describes this generation more than any that has been before, it is the sense of awareness, including self-awareness, but awareness in general.
1: Mm-hmm. You know,
0: um, I have a really hard, I'll be honest with you, I have a really hard time apportioning blame for where we are today because we were all doing it. We were True. all doing it. Our parents were doing it. We were doing it. You know, you don't get, you don't have a desire for fossil fuels unless there's a market for fossil fuels. We're all doing it, right? So I don't. I think it's a complete waste of time, like sitting around pointing fingers at one another, blaming a generation, blaming because they didn't. And this is the contrast that I would put with my kids versus their grandparents. Their grandparents didn't know, so their grandparents were, were raising us in an environment where they didn't know. I mean, there wasn't there wasn't a sense of awareness. We sort of knew, you know, we were starting to know certainly, and we didn't do much. These guys know, and and they are rightly a bit hacked off. But the other thing that I would I would say about this generation is that that uh, they are they are biased. Uh, sorry, they're action heavy. They're biased towards action, mm-hmm. and I think that this group are just going to do something. They're not going to wait for somebody to tell them what to do. They're going to do something. Now, when it comes to brands. That awareness, it means that they're deeply skeptical. You know, they, sure. they are very hard to market to because rightly so, because they're like, come on, seriously? I mean, that's what I hear, you know, uh, is a real, I think the sense of conscious consumerism, you know, mm-hmm. is out of the box, you know, and you can't put it back in. So they understand that the massive rise in used clothing sales in rent runway in and on and on and on um I think this group the massive rise in vegetarianism I think this group is is really saying you know we have a real deep awareness and a sense of what's going on right now, and if you as a brand think you can pull the wall over these eyes, good luck, buddy. I mean yeah. no way so as a brand, you know how do you a- approach that? I think one of the things that shocks me is that there aren't more 20-year-olds in the C-suite still, you know, is kind of remarkable to me, that we're not formulating decisions and policy and, um, you know, the future. The, the, this idea that anybody north of 50 is, is you know, the brains in the room. I think has, has been questioned for a long time. You know, we sure. have an opinion, we have some expertise. We've done some things before, so we've got some perspectives to offer, but I'm far more interested to talk to a 20 year old than I am to talk to a 50 year old. Yeah. Except you, obviously. thing. I think that that really, um, you know, it, it's so funny when we talk about perception, you're absolutely right when you talk about your sons. I mean, the stuff that comes out of their mouth. I mean, we don't even have TV. You know, we have the Netflix and the, the, you know, so we, we see some ads, but not very many ads, but some ads. My son turned around me the other day and said, you know, every single one of these ads is playing that same game where they like clone the person in the ads and there's like 50 of them. He's like, that's probably because of COVID because, you know, they can't like have multiple actors on a set. And I'm just sitting there looking at going, <laughs> When I was 17, those things were not popping up in my brain right. when I was watching TV. And I think they are incredibly sharp. They're very bright. They're very skeptical. Questions that I'm starting to kick around now. What if the traditional concept of what you and I would term brand loyalty. Mm. What if that is gone? Just gone with this generation. It does not exist. You certainly can't make predictions and assumptions and stock market bets and long-term plans because there aren't So, So what if you are in a constant stage of pivot and reinvent and move faster to try and keep, tracks or you just have to say I'm going to lose them for a while and then I got to get them back you know yeah. that that I think is a very interesting question for marketers and brands today I will be your biggest champion for 90 days and then I'm bored of you or you did something to irritate me and I'm moving on what what does that landscape
1: look like I have an article sitting on my printer in the other room that is all about this idea of Gen Z is a concept entirely in your head. It, it doesn't actually exist. Um, and we try so hard to create these constructs into which we can put cohorts of people, groups, and whatever. Um, but I think you're you're right. At least my, my, my sense of it is, is that you're absolutely right that this is we used to think the millennial generation was this exceptionally diverse group of people. And we yeah. you know, we still tried to build these constructs around them so that we could market to them effectively. Whereas, man, I'll tell you, after the um March for Our Lives march in DC, when we all went down there with my sons, we sat around the kitchen table with all of their friends, and there was black, Indian, white, straight, gay. I mean, there was just this this like United Nations view of their friends, which were all extraordinarily different. And I think it is a freaking nightmare to try to think if I was on a marketing team, yeah. how I actually construct messages that fit appropriately to this group. Well, and I mean, that,
0: that, that point alone, I mean, um, yeah, maybe, maybe generational marketing is not what it was, right? but yeah. you cannot ignore societal change at that sure. level. I mean, yeah. LGBTQ plus alone, you know, that that, that this generation looks at mm-hmm. its parents as, as if they're from Mars. Like, what do you mean? What do you mean somebody has to be straight or gay? Yeah. You think there's two? Right. I mean, what? honestly, you know, and and I think they're looking at it not from some, you know, sort of politically, you know, stance it's just the way they think and the way they talk and the way that they're raised i thought i read a beautiful quote the other day that said that um you know momentum only goes in one direction you know it just moves forward it just keeps moving and and once we have embraced an idea as as fantastic and wonderful as all shades of sexuality are accepted that idea does not go back you can try you can try pulling it back for a while. You can put some laws in place and you can do some stuff. But that is the, that is the future. And I'm, you know, so to ignore that for this generation, I think is, you, you know, you're, you're on, it's not going to last
1: very long. The future is now, right? And it sounds quaint and it says, like, the future is now. As, as in, other, in other words, go out and do some shit and get things done because there's no time to wait. But I think, like, literally, we are going to be in a perpetual series of now. Certainly, in their world, I have this feeling that thing—the fluidity of their experience—really is all about now, and I find that really interesting. Uh, John Paul Getty has this great quote that, um, in times of rapid change, you know, experience might just be your worst enemy. And I—I I don't know that they have this connection to tradition in the way that I grew up with. I loved the brand because it had been around for a hundred years. I could rely on products, I could rely on service, I could rely on the quality of the of whatever it was um but i'm not sure tradition matters so much uh to them i, I don't know if that's right or wrong i just it's a feeling that they're less tied to tradition than to really be focused in this space and with a bit of a fear about what's happening in the next now uh the future you know where they're going to try to figure out whether the world's going to burn or not
0: i still think they have a respect for i mean you know your your sons are drummers yeah you know i suspect they have a respect for a certain brand or two that produced a product that like, you know, we got Ludwig black beauty snare drum, you know, the most beautiful thing in the freaking universe. And they play one of those. I think they would say, that's a thing. That yeah. was the thing. Yeah. And nothing we make today is like that thing.
1: Well, yeah. it's fun. it's so like, I love this discussion because my son, just my son, the drummer, Nick uh, bought a new Gretsch uh, kit, Gretsch. Um, well, there you go. It's been, it's been forever. But he says, why do I buy a Gretsch kit? Because every, drummer that was worth following or learning from was a, you know, was a Gretsch drummer. It's a mic
0: drop moment. This is it. Right. This is what yeah, I'm
1: right. talking about. Right. And so, and he literally, you know, used the hell out of a kit that he got when he was probably early teens up until now. So for the past, let's say 10 years, you know, he's been using this kit and finally he, he got his money together, focused on what he want, but he customed, virtually everything about it. The sizes, the color, the hardware. He actually bought Gretsch hardware online and reconditioned, you know, drum mounts. He had his symbols made by a guy in Japan to his specifications. And I find that fascinating that they're not just willing to go to the shelf and pull something off, that they're more likely to customize both experience and products and services to their individual Well, my friend,
0: I think you just tied your bow on top of our conversation. I mean, to me- is the, no, I mean, that is the, that is a perfect example of the old meeting the new. Yeah. Now we have, I want to buy from this brand because they have a legacy and they have a history and, and you know, uh, they've got a fantastic pedigree, but I want to tailor that brand to what exactly what I'm looking like for today.
1: So let's talk about strategy for a second. Um, strategy and process, because I think all of this suggests that uh, if I use the John Paul Ketty quote, you know, um, experience might just be your worst enemy. What do um, you mean by that? Well, I think it it means that in when you, my my feeling is that when you become increasingly disconnected from tradition, when change is happening so quickly that we're forced into Uh, maybe not being able to rely on the past so much because it simply might just not apply at all, Uh, that it forces you into this really focusing on what's happening now, looking towards the future, that you might not be able to rely on systems and processes that seem to have worked famously for 100 years. But there's been so much upheaval in the current circumstances that to continue to look backwards to go, this brings us back to the beginning of the conversation, continue to look backwards to go forwards, might not be the best strategy. Might not just, you, you, maybe you have to abandon you know, temporarily the thought that looking back actually gives us uh, a path forward. There, um, are, there are, I will say this,
0: there are increasing signs, I think, that some of the looking backwards is the path forwards.
1: You know mm, I, that's interesting,
0: you know I think about um the whole agrarian culture, local farm produce um you know short delivery no no factory mass farming anymore we've got to use mm. local farmers' local produce get it to our doors you know i uh I happen to live in you know in a town that is uh now our local grocery chain has just vaulted to number one on greenpeace's chart of most sustainable grocers giant eagle which is completely amazing to me they went from like 32 to one one year and they did it by saying that they are going to remove all single-use plastic all um you know unrecyclable uh, as they put it uneasy recyclable products From their shelves. No more clamshells. No more, you know, plastic bottles, no more and you and, and Greenpeace is pretty is pretty hardcore. Like for them to say, Okay, we've met with them, we actually think they're gonna do this. Yeah. And so you look at like what is their strategy for doing that. And their strategy is is largely we're gonna make ourselves like an old school grocer. You know, you're going to not just bring your own bags. You're going to bring your own containers, and you're going to fill. We're going to fill them in our store with things that you're going to buy. We're not going to put veggies or any of these things in anything. And you look at the model for that, and it's grocery stores of a hundred years ago of the past. Yeah, yeah. And 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 yet they'll still be selling these amazing things, these these new things. But they'll. So I do think you know. The conversation about the, the one that has shocked me the most is the conversation about organic cotton and realizing that when you go to organic cotton, you don't need pesticides hmm. because you don't need pesticides. You don't need to wash those pesticides off the cotton. And therefore, you can go from 2,600 liters of water to make a single T-shirt, which staggered me. Mm-hmm. to 0.4 liters of water to make a single T-shirt. So simply by going back to an organic farming model, organic farming model is the past. You know, pesticides are a recent development. So I do think there are some pointers that say, and again, you know, this slower, smaller, more meaningful life, um there are those that would say it's boring, but there are those that would say we don't have an option, you know? So, yeah. so I, and again, I'm not in any way, shape, or form trying to sort of shaker the world, you know? I'm not trying to get us all back to that because I do enjoy innovation the much as, as much as the next guy. Mm. But am I excited that I'm flying less? I am, Yeah. you know?
1: That reminds me of, of being uh, in architecture school and doing a project where I had to go out and uh, design a gatehouse um, for uh the McGill University campus. And so I I thought I was, you know, clever. And I went out and I I surveyed all the architecture on the campus. And um in this wonderful passage of um Greek, Roman, uh, postmodern, uh, contemporary, um, deconstructivist architecture created this wonderful monster, <laughs> Frankenstein of a gatehouse, and of course they, in the crit, they jumped over me, and I thought, oh, that's great, they're leaving the best for last. Uh, <laughs> evidently, that the answer was no. They, they, they you know, dragged me out as, <laughs> as simply saying like, what are you doing? You can't do this. I mean, like you literally can't do this because we don't have the craftsmen. But the key here, which I suppose is the same key to what you're saying about going backwards is they said it's perfectly fine to understand the principles upon which those architectural styles were built because those are generally universal and to use them in a contemporary context of the now where materials finishes, uh, construction methodologies are all changed. So what would it look like if you looked at those basic rules through a new set of glasses? And I think it's the same thing is that if you believe it's exactly the same thing,
0: this is, I mean, this is what I am, I am trying to do. You know, they, they say if you, if you design for long enough, then teaching is in your teaching is the only thing left. So, um, it may well be what what I'm going to do next. Um, but, I don't know. Like, if I look at the majority of student portfolios that I see right now, and I'm not—I'm mm. not trying to be critical here. I'm, I'm in, in many ways I might be critical of some of the curriculums more than than of the students. Mm. I see a lot of focus on sustainability and a lot of conversations about sustainability, almost completely driven by materiality, yeah. which is fine. Materiality is important. It's not driven by construction techniques, and I right. actually think the aha moments a lot of the aha moments come from construction techniques Um, and you know i i think we've done some very interesting work in the last couple of years and i think we'll do some more around designing with zero waste in mind Mm -hmm. so you know the sheet size of a material right you know that right and the way that we design today is we take we say stamp that out of that and anything that's left off you can do what the hell you want with it and it is a totally different process when you say, "Okay, I've got a sheet. How can I design this to get as many of these pieces out of that sheet as possible?" You know, with zero waste, and by the way, extremely lightweight and easy to flat pack and easy to ship. Right. Kind of like the IKEA approach to to designing yeah. retail stores. Well, we've not done that, and we've not taught people to do that. I think that, to me, would be a really fascinating pivot where you had a class in design school that said, "We're going to look at." You know um we're going to look at the uh the crate chair you know um that was designed i can't remember the name of uh, it Reitfeld, Wrightville's crate chair no, yeah yeah it was designed to uh you know one piece of sheet material all side cuts you know and you end up with that thing so and it took him six years by the way to get all those dimensions right but i think designing something from that perspective um and, and reverse engineering it out of that is that kind of change of gear that I'm seeing is gonna to have to start happening. If you think about I just read this week about um the new um Hotel Marcel in um in Connecticut, New Haven. Mm-hmm, so it's mm-hmm. the Marcel Brewer um Perelli uh Uh, I think it's the Armstrong Rubber Factory that became the Pirelli Rubber Headquarters or whatever. But it's a beautiful, brutalist building in in New Haven. And um, uh, this architect bought it, Becker and Becker, bought it for $1.2 million. I don't know where you live, David, but I can look out of my window right now and see houses that that are $1.2 million. Not mine, but I can see them. And and, and so they bought this massive building for $1.2 million. And they're turning it into the U.S.'s first net zero hotel, Yeah, uh, actually in partnership with, with uh, Hilton, who's an old friend of yep. mine. You know yep. those guys as well. And um, one of the things they uncovered during the process was that um, solar panels, which I never knew. This is the other thing about consciousness and awareness. Solar panels produce DC current, and I didn't know that. And so we lose a lot of the current, knocking that down to AC current to use in homes and buildings well they just Mm -hmm. converted the entire hotel to dc
1: that's fabulous it's
0: one of those ideas we go oh my god you know and so now they're able to get much more efficiency out of the solar panels they're able to create the first net zero hotel in the u.s it's adaptive reuse new construction techniques new things going into this and i just look at it uh, the quote from Becker and Becker was completely brilliant to me where he said, the question shouldn't be, why are we doing this? The question should be, why isn't everybody else yeah
1: doing this? Yeah.
0: yeah. And I thought that was, that was really fascinating. So, so, th- so as we talked at the beginning, you know, this is a fork in the road. This is a, one of those magical moments that you never get, you know, maybe once in a lifetime, we're at one of those points. Mm-hmm. And so our question becomes, Which way do we go? And largely think we don't have any choice, but that still doesn't mean we wouldn't spend an extended period of time figuring it out. I think the writing's on the wall and we need to to start thinking differently. So yeah, Yeah. get more uncomfortable, take more risk, do more interesting things, design in different ways, utilize materials in different ways. And even like the conversation about materials, you know, um, somebody needs to be having a really grown up conversation about cradle to cradle you know do we do we honestly need to make any more of some of these materials don't we have enough if we just recycle them properly and use them in the right way so building something out of 100 percent recycled aluminum would be really fascinating to see um as Mm. opposed to just making more and constantly manufacturing i think it
1: I think it's a fascinating opportunity for us. That's a huge challenge. I know when we were at Marriott, um, Terry Smith, who was the head engineer there, was really on a push to get uh, plastic bottles out of um, the the world. um, And to begin to think about how do we put um, filtration systems into hotels? And, you know, I I have not done my research to no, know that's actually true, but uh, it seems to feel right that um, we all work hard to put things in our blue bin, but much of what we do put in our blue bin actually still ends up in the ocean, um, yeah. re- regardless of the yeah. fact that we think that it's all being recycled. Yeah, uh, it's a significant challenge, and I I can tell you, you know, at home here, gosh, we we go through more plastic bottles of water than than makes me feel at all comfortable, and yet we keep doing it, which is, I suppose, irresponsible. I like the idea very much about. Our focus in the design and architecture and construction industry have been focused on sustainable materials, mm-hmm. um, certified forests, all good mm-hmm. things you should all good. think about. Uh, But not really talking about this larger issue about uh, regenerative architecture. How can whatever it is that we do do, because what we do do is one of the largest contributors to greenhouse gases uh, on the planet, the the building industry is, which goes back to this idea of process, I think, and thinking about how do you design and does process need to change with change? It's very, it's it's, it's a fascinating question.
0: Um, I think, I think it, I don't think process needs to change but I do think the the in, the points of input need to move like you know it's mm. it's you know I've always had five rules to design um you know the, the first one is is look harder the idea that you interrogate anything that is put in front of you with a healthy degree of skepticism and and just look at it through different eyes yeah. one of the things that I Struggled with mightily in the corporate world was this culture of go no go. They have a go no go mentality. You sit mm-hmm. in a room, somebody presents something to you, and you've got to choose. And and sometimes the the, the, the financial implications of those decisions are eye watering. And um, I've recently been saying to my clients, you know, I want you to sleep on this. Actually, I'm come back next week. Do not give me an answer right now because it's impossible. I'm showing you this for the first time. Needs you to go percolate. Anyway, so look harder, that sort of first idea. Um, you know, the second concept is really about um uh, sort of coming to something with child mind. You know, approach any problem as if you know nothing about it. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. and, and this to me goes to it's obviously Buddhist idea, but um yeah. but it's also kind of Shaker. You know, Shaker just sort of responded to the circumstances and built their world around what they had. That's why Shaker Furniture is made out of pine, because it's all they had. You know, so they built their world around this strange set that they just went to it with an open mind, you know, from Germany and around, arrived in Pennsylvania and said, what are we going to do? You know, and I think far, so many meetings that I walk into where people are, have already arrived at the solution, you know. Yeah. And yeah. I think that idea of if we're going to fix sustainability, we need those two in spades. You know, we need people coming to this going, I need to understand the science and I need both sides, both sides to stop the fake news. I need mm-hmm. both sides to give me the facts so that I can as- assess what's going on because that, we should be able to arrive at that. And then I need to come at the problem with an open mind. I mean, if you ask the guys from Shaker to solve sustainability, they would fix it out. You know, if we, if we turn the keys over to Ikea, they'd figure out a way to solve this quite quickly, I
1: think. Sure. Yeah. And our
0: problem is we're tied up in politics and lobbyists and money and all that kind of stuff. We need to just, because the problem needs to be solved. So I think getting those guys involved would be really good. And then, you know, the other principles, you know, the idea of just shutting your yap and listening has always been a huge, huge part of, uh, I have my, I, my design teams always have a paddle that they can hold up when Christian's talking too much, which is useful. And and does it doesn't say I mean, shut
1: up on it. Or it, that, it is- just
0: just hold the paddle up, and it's like you're talking too much. Like,
1: uh, back that's great. Uh,
0: and then you know, uh, I can never remember the fourth one, and the fifth one is um, I haven't written down over there. But the fifth one is um, is what we were talking about earlier on. Get uncomfortable with being, i'll get comfortable with being uncomfortable. You know, yeah. I think we need to bring those same sets of of sort of design things. To me, those think those sets don't those tools don't change. The other thing I, I think is worth talking about for a minute this concept of creativity in in the really 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 broad sense like people ask me this all the time they're like can you teach creativity to people
1: I love that question
0: yeah and my personal view is that you can but you're not teaching them how to be creative you're reminding them how to be creative because they were born with it they've just forgotten Mm -hmm. and i think Mm -hmm. that that to me is is what we is what we need to do when we're working with our younger designers when we're working with our clients who are somewhat resistant sometimes to the solution we're not trying to be preachy or clever or anything like that comes from a point of humility comes from a point of love as you said earlier on but awakening that within people again after Middle school and high school knocked it out of them. It's probably the most beautiful thing that that you can do as a designer is to say to somebody, have a little bit of confidence in yourself because you have yeah. everything that you need to reach this solution is already inside that head of yours. Right. And you know, one of the things that I've loved about this working from home thing is I think I've managed to sort of fall back into the way that I used to design almost like in college, like recognizing that that you're always being creative. Like you, you're all, you're, your mind is always on, you know, and, right. and this idea that if you're not on a conference call, you're not working is bizarre to me, you know, because I, I swear to God, the best ideas that I've ever had in my entire career have come when I've either been in the bath or mowing the lawn or riding a bike or, you know, just doing something where your mind just gets loose. Wonders. And wonders. Yep. Yes, exactly. Yeah, That's yeah, the perfect yeah, way yeah. of putting it. And I think that the constraints of a typical nine-to-five working environment choke that out. Yeah. I mean, yeah. we spe- I spent so much time in my last few jobs in meetings about meetings.
1: Yes, of course. Yes. As my
0: son puts it, busy work. where you're in meetings about meetings and i'm like i don't have the time to let my mind wander and if you really want me to do what i think i'm best at it's when my mind is wandering and and then we come back from those bike rides thank god for the notes thing on the phone because i i would would forget all these things but you come back from the bike ride and you've got like three things that you didn't have when you were riding
1: out so you know, there's there's so much in what you just said. And I want to hit on three things there. One, Mihai Cheeks and Mihai, who is the father, I guess, of the theories of creativity, just died recently. Uh, there was uh, um, a lot of press uh, through uh, LinkedIn now. Um, and if you're interested in, in really digging into understanding creative process, and I love that because I turned down a teaching job to teach creativity back in the late '90s because I said I don't know how to do that and and what creativity is about. Ken Robinson, uh Sir oh, Ken Robinson, Ken Robinson's right? Head talk. F- 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 fabulous, right? We're all born creative, we just haven't educated oh. out of us. And I think it's so, so true. Talk
0: about a loss last year. I mean, he is yeah. a titan. He was an absolute titan of that
1: thinking. Yeah. Yeah. E- immense. And and so, so true about trying to understand uh where along the way we lose that. i yeah. I, I I know where I lost it. Um I happen to have a Uh, A father who said that art was a good thing to do, but not a great thing to try to found your career on because it was so unpredictable. So if I could, I would be a dentist. I just happened to become an architect. I combined both together. Good for me. And then, you know, it reminds me of Steve Jobs, the story of Steve Jobs. He, He would literally go on most of his meetings walking. Yeah. You know, and it would walk people in, in these discussions. And yeah. what a brilliant way to think about doing those meetings. And why is it not that we don't create opportunities in corporate environments for that very kind of interaction? He did it with the, the Pixar team yeah. in creating, you know, how that that space worked. Uh, and we just don't do it and we don't create those sanctuaries. Or well, maybe we have now we've been forced well, we should, Yeah, you Yeah, know, exactly right. right. Again, I think I,
0: I certainly have not been more creative in my career than I have in my last 18 months.
1: Well, I, I, I agree.
0: I feel as though I uh, have rediscovered a whole side of me that had, well, it was in danger of going to sleep. Mm. You know, and I think you just, the fact that it's still there is encouraging, but the fact that this has given us the opportunity, I think, it's like I was chewing on, literally, literally yesterday, I was chewing on a problem. I was walking around the house and I pulled a book out that I hadn't read in a while and I opened the book and I was like, huh 15 minutes later i've got the idea yeah you know and it, it, that, that stuff does not happen when you are, you know when you're stuck in a conference room with no windows you know
1: as we come to the close here i i wanted to go back to something that is um profound, I think, the experience that we both share with regard to our, our parents. Mm-hmm. And you said something in a conversation that I found particularly interesting about that issue of, of designing the spaces that are accommodating people with dementia or our aging population. And you said, you know, how do we turn design towards idea like decency mm. and respect? Mm-hmm. And I just found it to be a really Profound question about how how we do what we do and turn it towards those kinds of ideas.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm glad you didn't end up as a dentist um, because I think you've done some lovely work over the years. And, <laughs> well, thank you, um, and I've always admired
1: it. And I my th- teeth are okay, though. My teeth <laughs> okay. I should brush um, my teeth three times a day.
0: I think that um, you know we get into this business. You know, ninety percent of people that choose the path of design. I think choose it because they believe in the power of design to make the world better. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter what their discipline is, they believe that they are getting into it not for their own self, you know, self glory in any way shape or form. Most designers, I think, believe fundamentally that design improves the world and has since the beginning of time, right? So you talk to a real militant graphic designer and they would say my job is to introduce clarity and and make things more ordered and make things more clear and yes more expressive and more beautiful but the order relies at the heart of what we do industrial designers would say i want things to work better i want them to feel better i want them to hold them and look better yes but definitely around the idea that design makes the world a better place and so if we if we focus on and i would i would put all healthcare in here but particularly elder care if we focus on the times when we are the most desperate, and the most mm. helpless, and the most in need, and how design can be a part of helping that, there are very fundamental issues. You know, if you can't clean yourself, um, if you can't, if you're, if you become immobile um when you've had a lifetime when that wasn't the case um if if you lose your sight if you lose the ability to communicate all of these things are mind-blowingly challenging from a logistical standpoint but think of what they do to the person too um you know particularly in the case of my father as he was losing his mind he knew he was losing his mind and i've reflected on that so many times the horror of that situation where you can feel it slipping away so what are these what are the spaces and the circumstances and the experiences that we can we can design knowing that fact and i think in in elder care you know we have through no fault of anybody's we have pivoted towards a sort of environment of trying to pretend everything's okay and 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 say that people will be in comf- will be comfortable in an environment that makes them think everything is okay we might need to start to think about environments that acknowledge that everything is not okay and that perhaps that person needs the dignity of living in an environment that acknowledges that and then tries to make that environment as pleasant and uh, and as uh, supportive as it can be but this is not you know you and i both know from painful personal experience this doesn't get better. It just gets worse. Mm-hmm. So I think starting to think about that, the, the, the village experiment that they've been doing in Europe where they have the village where the Alzheimer's patients can interact safely with, with the caregivers and um, without realizing that the lady that works at the post office isn't the lady that works at the post office, she's actually a doctor. And seeing how that is slowing the rates of progression of Alzheimer's I think there are a lot of clues there to say to us if we can give them some sense of their independence safe obviously 100% safe but if we can give them some sense of their independence and some sense of of decency and respect and dignity we can we can make a better situation of a bad situation than we have right now and and design to me is an incredibly powerful tool that can be turned to that but that that when I heard about that village I was like that is one of those uh, moments of radically different difficult uncomfortable thinking mm-hmm. wait a minute you're going to put these people in an environment where we're not telling them the truth you know kind of like this truman show thing but it isn't that because you have to understand the state of what their mind is at that point sure. and, and and i think that is where things begin to get really 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 interesting to me so if i could design my own last five years of my career i would spend it working on problems like like those, because I think they're profound and they're coming, you know, we, we need these solutions quickly. Christian Davies, thank you. Thank you, my friend. So good to, so good to talk to you. Thanks for the opportunity.
1: Thanks for listening to this episode of Next Level Experience Design. And please remember to subscribe and share with all your friends, wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And don't forget to check out notes and links and other information like transcripts on the Next Level Experience Design webpage at simplecast.com. Also, follow me on social at LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for all of the information about upcoming shows and information on our guests who every day are taking it to the next level.